You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, well, good morning. Go ahead and return to your seats. Sorry to interrupt the greeting. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, my name is Jeremy Edelman. I'm the senior pastor here at River City Church. Whether you're a longtime member or a guest with us, we're glad that you're here. So thanks for joining us. As a church, we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. And we really do believe that lives are renewed through Jesus here. And I, I mean, I'll just say, one of the reasons we gather is to hear God's Word preached. One of the reasons we gather is to sing. And I don't know if you're like me, but that last song that was renewing my heart in Jesus as I was being reminded of what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's why we gather to encourage one another in greeting and to have our lives renewed through relationship with Jesus. You'll bring in with you all sorts of different types of weariness, whether it's weariness from busyness, maybe you had a busy week, maybe you've experienced the brokenness of the world, we've, we're watching it on our news cycle daily right now. Maybe you felt the burden of religion or you have felt weighed down by idols and sin that just wants to cling to us. But from wherever that weariness comes from, Jesus invites us to find our rest and our refreshment in Him. And we believe that lives are renewed in relationship with Jesus. If there's nothing else you learn about us this morning, we want you to hear that. We love Jesus. And we believe lives are renewed in relationship with Him. The one who came and died for us even in our brokenness and who through his blood invites us into a new covenant with our God who offers rest and refreshment in him. And so as we begin, let me offer you this welcome in the name of Jesus. For all of you this morning who have brought some of that weariness in this room with you and you're in need of rest. To all of you who mourn and are in need of comfort, to all of you who feel worthless this morning and you're wondering if God cares, to those of you who fail and need strength, to those of you who sin and need a Savior, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. We are glad that you are here with us this morning, and may your life be renewed in Jesus today. Now, if you would, open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. That's where we'll be today. today. Uh, Acts 20, verse 36 is where we'll start. We're going to go all the way through chapter 21, verse 36, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 930. Feel free to open one of those. Uh, I'm not actually going to have our text on the screen this morning, so I would, would encourage you to get a Bible open. We'll work our way through it. You'll be able to follow along. We're continuing in this Acts series, and really like the book of Acts, at this point now, we're kind of racing to the conclusion. A lot's going to happen over the course of the next several weeks. Paul, our primary character, our primary human character here at the end of the book of Acts, he's completing his third missionary journey. He's about to be arrested in Jerusalem, and in the coming weeks, we'll see him before government officials. He's going to get shipwrecked on this small little island, all of that leading to him ending up in Rome. Including today, we have seven more sermons in our series in Acts, and so we're going to cover a lot of ground over the course of those weeks. And in today's text, we're going to see Paul, he's, he's heading into Jerusalem, and 
he, he does that even after he gets warned by a prophet that it will lead to his future imprisonment. His friends that are around him, they're urging him not to go, but Paul is determined to go. He believes the Spirit has called him to go to Jerusalem to bring these financial gifts that have been given by churches throughout Asia and Greek to give to poor Christians in Jerusalem. He believes that God has called him to go, no matter the consequences that will happen to him. And that's what we'll see happen in our passage. And so, let me pray for us as we open our word. We're going to ask God to help us see what he has for us in his word. And so, Father, we do ask, as we open our Bibles, would you help us? God, we believe that your word is your revelation to us, your people. You tell us about yourself and about your work in the world through the scriptures. And so, we want to see, would you open our eyes? And as we open your word together, God, would you open our eyes that we would behold the wonderful things that you have here in your word for us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I read a quote from Dallas Willard recently, and it said this, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And here's why I like that quote, because it reminds me that my life is meant to be lived after the pattern of the only human who ever lived this life perfectly. As we mature as followers of Jesus, we live our lives more and more like he would have lived it if he were us. Jesus is the chief example for us of what it means to be human, and there's an identification that we take on when we come to trust and believe in Jesus. In fact, that's what the word Christian means. It's right there in the word. It means a follower of Christ. We take on His identity. It means that we identify as one of His. That's what I want us to see in our text this morning, that we identify with our Savior. We live our lives in the pattern of Jesus. That's what Paul understood himself to be doing. And Luke, the author of Acts, he does some really intentional things as he writes this narrative so that as we're reading about Paul in our passage, we cannot help but think about Jesus. And you'll see all these allusions to Jesus' own journey to Jerusalem and the cross. This is seen most clearly in chapter 21, verse 13, when Paul declares, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul, here he is, on his way to this same city that crucified his Savior, and he keeps getting warned that if he goes to Jerusalem, it's going to lead to his persecution. But Paul felt that if he suffered in Jerusalem, that he did so as someone who was experiencing what his Savior had experienced before him. So here's what I want us to see in our passage. Here's the big idea. Following Jesus means identifying with him in our joys and our sorrows. You see, it's going to be easy to identify with Jesus on your good days, in your joys. When you experience the gifts of following Jesus, then you're going to be happy to wear the jersey, to put on like the Team Jesus jersey, so to speak. But it will not be as easy to identify with Jesus on your bad days. When you experience the cost of following Jesus, you might be tempted to want to take the jersey off, so to speak. But this isn't like wearing your favorite team's jersey when they're winning and then leaving it on the hanger more often when they're losing. For example, did you know that when Tom Brady signed with the Buccaneers just a few years ago, his jersey sold more times in a single year than any other jersey has sold in a single year in the history of the NFL? Prior to him signing with the Buccaneers, their merchandise was among the worst selling of any NFL team until Tom Brady signed with them, and then the Buccaneers' merchandise was the number one selling merchandise among any team in the NFL. 
No one wanted to wear the Bucks jersey when they were bad, but everyone wanted some Bucks merch when they were feeling good or when they were good. Right? Following Jesus is not like that. You don't wear the jersey on the good days, identify with him when you're feeling good about it. But we do that even on our bad days. And I would say especially on our difficult days do we need to find our identity in Jesus. Growth as a follower of Jesus means that we learn to live our life more and more in the pattern of our Savior, in our joys and in our sorrows. And so in our passage today, what we're going to see is two results of identifying with Jesus in all of life. The first is the gift of Christian friendship, and the second is the cost of Christian discipleship. So we'll begin with the gift of Christian friendship. We're going to see that here at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. It's the beginning of our passage, but it's the end of his third journey. He's traveling to Jerusalem. As I said, he's bringing financial gifts to be given to the poor Christians there in Jerusalem. And along the way, he stops in several cities. And you can, as we read this, you'll see, you'll just feel the love that there is between Paul and the Christians that he visits there. As someone who identifies with Jesus, Paul, he's being grafted in, or he has been grafted in, to this ever-growing family of God, which is why we're going to see that the first result of following Jesus is that we receive the gift of Christian friendship. And so we'll begin in verse 36 of chapter 20. Again, that's on page 930 of of your pew Bibles, and like I said, it's not going to be on the screen, so follow along in your Bible. Verse 36 begins, it says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Let me, just, let me just give you some context there. Paul here, he's wrapping up this lengthy time or this lengthy discourse he has with the leaders in Ephesus. We're picking up on the story that Eric preached on last week. Paul, he's just about to leave Ephesus, a church that he helped to start, a place that he spent two to three years in ministry, a church that Paul loved deeply. He cares deeply for the elders there that he just got done speaking to. This church loves Paul as well, and we can feel the emotion that's going to be exchanged between them as he leaves Ephesus. We'll pick it up in verse 37. It says, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's friends here in Ephesus, they knew that it had been predicted that he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. It had been communicated to them that they would likely not see Paul ever again. And so there was a great deal of weeping and sorrow by all of them. They loved Paul. He loved them. Being united to one another through Jesus, it does that to people. God the Father is fulfilling the prayer of His Son to make His followers one, just as the Father and Son are one. And we see that on display in Paul's interactions between these churches. Picking up in verse 1, we get this kind of travelogue from the author as they head over to the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. It says, And when we parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Now, they've just circled around the southwest coast of what would be Asia or modern-day Turkey, and they're about to set sail across the Mediterranean. It says, having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, we miss this because we don't, we don't know the geography of first century you know, Mediterranean area very well, but they just crossed the Mediterranean Sea. They passed Cyprus, this island on their left. They landed on what would be the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They're just a little ways north of Jerusalem in Tyre. 
And it says that having sought out the disciples there in verse 4, that they stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, again, we see this repeated theme. There's this warning coming that's being made for Paul. It was mentioned in Ephesus. It's happening here in Tyre. It's going to show up in the next towns. We're going to read about the fulfillment of it when Paul actually gets to Jerusalem, but they're worried about what's going to happen there. Verse 5, when our days were ended, there we, or when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and they returned home. Again, we see this deep love being exchanged. This Christian friendship, it's on display as Paul and his companions are leaving Tyre. All the Christians there, husbands, wives, children, households, they accompany Paul and his missionary team. They go down to the beach where they are getting ready to load the ship and head south. They get down on their knees together and they pray together. Everyone says their goodbyes and then Paul, he continues his journey south on his way to Jerusalem. And in a similar way to the departure from Ephesus, the love and the concern that we see among all of them is evident in their actions and in their behavior. The journey continues in verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. I'm not, I'm not sure why Luke provides so much detail about the journey on the way to Jerusalem, but one of the things I appreciate about verse 7 is that once again we see this community of believers that welcome Paul into their homes, even for just one night, to just stay for one day. They welcome him there, they spend time together, and then Paul and his companions board another boat and they head out again on verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." And so here we see Paul, he gets in Caesarea, he visits Philip. This is the same Philip we read about in Acts 6, who was part of the seven that provided for the widows there. It's the same Philip in Acts 8 who evangelizes in Samaria and who evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch. That's why he gets that title, the evangelist. We don't see that title for very many people, but it's pretty significant that Philip receives this title. And what we see then is God's Spirit here is alive and well in the home of Philip. His daughters, they prophesy. A prophet comes to visit them from Judea, warns Paul that he's going to be bound and delivered to the Gentiles if he goes to Jerusalem. And again, we see this repeated prediction happening. And the response that they have here in Caesarea is similar to others along the journey in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. In light of this newest warning, Paul's companions, they did not want him to go. Everyone is urging him, do not go. Even Luke, the author of Acts, is included in this. He's the we. He's part of the we that gets referenced in verse 12. But God's Spirit, this is important to know, because as I was thinking about this, I thought, okay, all these uh, warnings are coming, but Paul didn't listen. Why? Well, God's Spirit never tells Paul not to go to Jerusalem, just what's going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. All of his friends interpreted this prediction from God's Spirit as a prohibition against Paul going to Jerusalem, but that was not Paul's understanding. 
He felt that God's Spirit was actually calling them to go to Jerusalem, and so this prediction served to actually reinforce his dedication to going. It did not deter him, but it actually increased his determination to remain faithful to God no matter the results. What we see in verse 13 is that Paul answers, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? He's saying, like, why are you you're making this so hard on me? You're weeping and breaking my heart. But he's saying, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Some scholars have called this Paul's Gethsemane moment making us think about Jesus' time in the garden and his determination to remain faithful to God's mission, even if it did eventually lead to the cross. It was not their will, but God's will that would be done. The highest aim of a follower of Christ is not just the preservation of their own life. That's not the highest aim, but faithfulness to God's mission. Thomas Aquinas once said, if the highest aim of a captain were to preserve his ship, he would keep it in port forever. Paul's greatest aim in life was not the avoidance of suffering, but that his life would be lived for the glory of God, even if that meant he would have to suffer for the name of Jesus. After these days, it says in verse 15, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. The reason it says up, even though they're kind of heading south, is because it's up in elevation from the coast, so they go up to Jerusalem. Eventually, Paul and his companions, they end up making that final leg of their journey to Jerusalem. And once again, we're going to see the gift of Christian friendship here in verse 16 when they arrive. It says, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When they get to Jerusalem, they find yet another follower of Jesus to stay with. Throughout this final leg of Paul's missionary journey, there are at least three ways, different ways that Christian friendship gets expressed. The first of them is through hospitality. Throughout the Bible, Christian hospitality is expressed in many different ways. We see it show up all over, but it always includes some combination of relational welcome and shared resources. Hospitality means that we welcome insiders and we welcome outsiders. We treat friends and strangers alike. This is important when we think about evangelism. As we seek to as gospel witnesses this year, it's important for us to remember that as we show hospitality to others, we express the generous welcome of our God for us. And it also happens, we see here in this passage, uniquely among followers of Christ, where we welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ and have an immediate depth of relational intimacy because of our shared union in Jesus, because of our shared identity in Christ. In each new city, Paul was welcomed into the lives of of those who were there. He was welcomed into their homes because hospitality includes also shared resources. We, We welcome people into homes. We share meals. We offer a warm bed. And Paul needed this hospitality on his journey. He needed to be strengthened by this Christian friendship, not just for practical reasons, but also relational ones that would give him strength to endure what was ahead. The second way that Christian friendship is expressed is through affection. Friendship and love must actually be expressed at some point through genuine affection for one another. We see this in many ways here. People are weeping when Paul leaves their city. They embrace Paul physically. Whole families accompany him to a ship and they say their goodbyes. They're kissing him and expressing sorrow. They kneel down and pray together. Christian friendship is expressed in very practical ways with one another. This is helpful for us to remember today. 
And it might be something you want to ask yourself. How can I intentionally express my affection for others here in ways that are, of course, culturally appropriate for today? Who might need your encouragement today? Who might you be able to share a meal with, to send a text to, to give a hug? Your Christian friendships must find a means of expression if they are going to be Christian friendships like we see in the Scriptures. And the third expression of Christian friendship is prayer. In each new city that Paul goes to, they prayed together. When Paul leaves Ephesus, they knelt down and they prayed in chapter 20, verse 36. When Paul leaves Tyre, they knelt down on the beach, they prayed together in chapter 21, verse 5. Before they leave Caesarea, they turned over the results to the Lord. They trusted Him through their, their just simple prayer, let the will of the Lord be done. One of the ways we express our Christian friendship is through prayer. And this for me was very practical this past week. Uh, because I experienced the gift of Christian friendship through the prayers of others. So this past week, I, I was not doing well by the time Friday came around. It was just a couple days ago. And there's many different reasons why that was true. Nothing in life was a total disaster necessarily, but there was this growing accumulation of small things that just started weighing upon me. And it was really set over the edge on Friday morning when our dog, Lewis, you should really think before you get a dog, um, he tore off our internet box on the back of our house. So this required me to call our internet service provider so that someone could come out and help us get it fixed. And I don't know if any of you have ever tried to contact customer service for an internet service provider. It's terrible. I won't tell you the name of my internet service provider because I don't want to slander them publicly. But when I think about what, what needing to call customer service will be like in hell, I think that this was pretty close. <laughs> After being on hold with him for just like far too long, I got disconnected by them. My line was still active. I tried the chat feature then, which is also funny for an internet service provider because internet's usually down when you need to reach out to them and you need a browser. To, so fortunately, I have a data plan, so I'm messaging through my phone. I also got cut off from the chat feature, again, by them before they gave me another number I could call. Well, finally I found the number, and so I got on the line with someone, genuinely a helpful person, which I am really thankful for. But they needed to do a connectivity check, again, for like the third time, so they had me unplugging my router again and resetting the whole thing, and I'm sure that it's protocol, but I had told them. My dog literally tore my internet box off the side of my house. I know what the problem is. I need a technician. So after all that, they got me an appointment, which I was thankful for in a week, for somewhere between 8.15 in the morning and 4.30 in the afternoon. So, I, now I realize that the loss of internet isn't the worst thing that could happen to somebody, right? I was born before internet. People survive generations without internet. But what I found on Friday was that there, there was something off in my spirit. There was a, a growing opposition, even, if you will. Frustration with customer service being just one of many different reasons. And so, uh, my wife, Megan, encouraged me to go for a run, to just reset my mind, my body. I work from home on Friday so I can write my sermon, and so I took a quick break to go for a run. And at that point, even my sermon was feeling more like toil than delight to prepare, which is odd because I, I really enjoy the text that we're studying today. But it made me wonder if there were spiritual forces at play. Between our vote today, some new commitments my family has made for Lent this year, there's important things on the horizon. I am sure that Satan is not pleased with the spiritual renewal that is happening in our church and in my family. 
And so I was out in my run, I was just praying, I was asking God for help. And it was, as if he, it was as if he said to me, hey, Jeremy, you know how you're going to tell everyone on Sunday that one of the gifts of being my child and identifying with Jesus is that you get the gift of experiencing Christian friendship? And you know how you're going to tell them all that one of the ways that this is expressed is through prayer? Do you think that's only for Paul? Or is that only for River City Church that you're going to be talking to? Do you think that's something that you get to experience as well? And so when I got home, I sent an email using the, you know, personal hotspot on my phone because I didn't have internet, but I sent this email, right, to some of my Christian brothers, some elders here and some friends and some fellow pastors, and I asked them if they could pray for me. And over the next several hours, I got emails and I got texts and response offering prayers and encouragements to me, strengthening my spirit so that I could be a patient and present father and husband to my family over the weekend, bringing clarity to my mind so that I could be a good pastor and shepherd to our church family today. As people who identify with Jesus, we can know and experience the gift of Christian friendship. Sometimes that comes in the form of hospitality, sometimes through genuine affection, and sometimes, like for me this past week, it comes through the prayer of those who care about us. Now, the second result of identifying with Jesus we will see today is the cost of Christian discipleship. This will be in Acts 21, verses 17 through 36. We'll pick up in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Paul, he had, he had stopped at Jerusalem just a few years earlier at the end of his second missionary journey, but so much had happened since then. The awakening in Ephesus had occurred. We just read about that over the last few weeks. Paul spent several year, years there in ministry. There was an outpouring of financial support among churches throughout Macedonia and Asia. He gives this report about all that God was doing among the Gentiles, and their response is to give glory to God, to celebrate with Paul for the work that had been done. And then they said to him, so, so they recognize there's going to be trouble here. So James is going to offer a solution, beginning in verse 20. He says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. They're acknowledging the, the, the problem that exists. Paul has been misunderstood. You see, he preaches a gospel of righteousness through faith, which meant that salvation did not come through the law of Moses, but through faith in Jesus. For Gentiles, that meant that they did not need to follow all of the Jewish customs in order to follow Jesus. And, and Jews were also free from the law as well. In all of this, Paul never actually spoke against the customs that the Jews held so dear. He just wanted to make sure that everyone knew where salvation came from, to make that perfectly clear. But these Jews who were jealous for the law, they had heard that Paul was actively speaking against their customs. And so, James predicts that they're going to be frustrated. And so, he says, what then is to be done in verse 22? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. 
James here, he makes this suggestion to them. He, he says, in order to show people that you're not speaking against Jewish customs, then participate in this purification vow. Do this thing and, and pay the expense for others who are in this vow as well. So now, to understand that, it's helpful to understand there's more than one type of vow that Jews may have taken on at this point in time. The four men that Paul's going to pay for were likely doing a Nazarite vow, which would take about 30 days to complete. Paul is probably going to participate in a purification vow, because that takes about seven days, which is going to get referenced in a moment. Jews, when they come back from Gentile lands, would typically do this for seven days. The suggestion here is that Paul would pay the expenses for the other four and then join them at the end of their vows by taking a seven-day purification vow himself. Now, Paul knew that this was not necessarily required by God. He also knew, though, that it would help to remove distraction from the gospel for all the Jews there in Jerusalem. And I think this is one of the costs of Christian discipleship. Sometimes it means giving up certain freedoms. In order to be a faithful witness to the gospel, even though you are free in Christ, you are not entitled to whatever you want, whenever you want. And in my observation, I think evangelicals in America suffer from an entitlement mentality. This goes beyond simply advocating for the equal rights in a pluralistic society. I think that we, we've had a significant influence in politics and culture for many decades. And as the megaphone on our voice, our collective voice, gets turned down in American society, our response should not be one of entitlement, but one of humility and one of service. That's what we see here in Paul. He was willing to become all things to all people. As he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 20-23, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul, he's recognizing, I'm not under the law, but I will happily submit to the customs of the law. If it will mean removing a barrier for the gospel. He goes on, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul, he, he wrote this to the Corinthians, and we see it being lived out right here as he takes this vow in Jerusalem. For Paul, so long as it doesn't compromise the gospel and it doesn't lead to idolatry and sin, he's willing to be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And Paul, he goes on to describe some other things, that this agreement they had come to. We're not going to read everything word for word, but he kind of references the end of a letter he sent in Acts 15, and he says, we're on the same page. That's what he's saying there when he says, they wrote to the Gentiles to abstain from certain things. But what we find here is that this plan doesn't work out very well. In verse 27, it says, When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, him being Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul, again, he's misunderstood, and now he's even being misrepresented. They had seen him with, with Greek friends in the city. Trophimus is named, but Paul did not bring him into the temple. Nowhere does it say that, and Paul knew not to do that. But the Jews from Asia, they were quick to accuse him of this offense. 
The Jews that had come from Asia, they had already had conflict with Paul at several points throughout his missionary journeys, and they used a strategic accusation to stir up the crowd and bring an attack against Paul. In verse 30, it says that all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The crowd, they're stirred up by this accusation from the Jews in Asia. They probably would have killed Paul by beating him to death if the tribune had not come. But the Roman authorities, they hear the commotion, they run down to the temple area, and in verse 33, it says that the tribune came up and arrested him, that's Paul, they arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. The tribune here, uh, in any kind of region, the tribune was like the primary legal authority of that region. He's there trying to discern what was happening, but he could not figure it out because some yelled one thing, some yelled another thing. So rather than trying to get information from an enraged crowd, he knew that wouldn't work. He just takes Paul to the barracks. And in verse 35, it says that when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. The crowds were so violent that the soldiers had to actually pick Paul up and carry him into the barracks. And the mob in verse 36 says, away with him, which echoes the same words that the crowd yelled when they crucified Jesus. In Luke 23, 18, the crowd cried out together about Jesus, away with this man. Here in the very last words of our passage, we see yet another allusion to the way that Paul's life was lived after the pattern of Jesus. Paul learned more and more how to live his life as Jesus would if Jesus were him. And in our identification with Jesus, we will also experience the cost of discipleship. Paul experienced it here in at least three different ways. First, he was misunderstood because of the gospel. For those who did not understand the gospel, they would have thought that Paul was either too legalistic or that he was too liberal in his morality. On the one hand, Paul was deeply committed to obedience and to the ethical implications of the gospel. He did not see the coming of Jesus as a rejection of of the law, but the fulfillment of it. And therefore, he still believed that people should refrain from sexual immorality, that they should reject idol worship, that they should not slander or gossip, and that they should love their neighbor as as themselves. For anyone who doesn't understand the ethical implications of the gospel, calls for obedience to God will seem like legalism and a rejection of grace. But on the other hand, Paul taught that righteousness came through faith in Jesus alone. It did not come through the law, and for those who were in Christ, they were free from the obligations of the law. For those who were not Jews, they didn't need to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. And as a result, law-abiding Jews would have thought that Paul was too licentious and too liberal with his morality. Those who do not understand the gospel will betray their own misunderstanding through their accusation. The legalist will always see someone who is grounded deeply in the gospel as a morally compromised relativist. And on the other hand, the licentious person will see someone who is deeply grounded in the gospel and the ethical implications that come from the gospel as a stodgy legalist. 
If you identify with Jesus and you are fully committed to live your life in light of the gospel, then one of the costs of discipleship will be that you are misunderstood at times as a legalistic conservative by some or a morally relative liberal by others. The second cost of Christian discipleship that Paul experiences is the personal sacrifice he makes for the mission of Jesus. Paul was willing to become all things to all people. When James made the suggestion to enter this seven-day vow, Paul could have said, no way, I haven't done anything wrong. Why should I have to accommodate all these misinformed Jews? And in some level, he would have been right. He hadn't done anything wrong. The Jews in Jerusalem were misinformed, but that was not Paul's response. He was not entitled or unwilling to accommodate the needs and the perspectives of others. He experienced the cost. And in some ways, quite literally, by paying for the expenses of the four brothers under the Nazarite vow, through his own personal sacrifice to complete the purification vow that he knew was not necessary or required by God, but something he was happy to do to remove barriers for the gospel. When you follow Jesus, one of the costs is that you do not get to have an entitled response anymore, but you have become a humble servant to all. And the third and most physically severe cost that Paul experiences is the imprisonment at the hands of this mob. He's captured by a mob. He's beaten senseless by a crowd. He's turned over to Roman officials. He's put in prison. Paul saw his own suffering as sharing in the suffering of his Savior. Like Jesus, Paul was imprisoned by city authorities as the crowd screams away with him. Like his Savior, Paul was innocent of the accusations, and he is wrongly imprisoned. You see, the reason that we can identify with Jesus is because He first came and identified with us. We get to experience the gift of Christian friendship because Jesus left the intimacy of His heavenly communion. Jesus existed in an eternal and perfect union with the Father and the Spirit, and He stepped out of His heavenly relationships so that He could identify with us as a human. Jesus experienced the rejection of his own people and the betrayal and the abandonment of those who were closest to him. He suffered alone outside the city. He came to live the life that we could not live and die the death that only he could die on our behalf. He knew the cost of relational pain so that we could be grafted into God's family and experience the gift of Christian friendship. Further, the reason that we can identify with Jesus is because He identified with us first. We see that also in the cost of Christian discipleship. We see that Jesus paid the true cost with His own life. Paul did not endure His suffering alone. He knew that His Savior had experienced it first and that Jesus continued to experience it with Him. River City Church, I'm not calling you to the experience or to experience the cost of Christian discipleship through your own strength this morning, but to know the strength of the one who endured the cost on your behalf. We can identify with Jesus because he first identified with us. And the result of that will be the joys and the sorrows of this life as we experience the gift of Christian friendship and the cost of Christian discipleship, learning to live our lives as Jesus would if he were us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.